thought capital. No cash changes hands. Energy justice, tax incentives, environmental concerns, resource taxation, highly competitive. Australia is missing out. The social disorganization theory. We cannot think of China as just one big market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Are you running? Are you not running? I am officially running for President of the United States. We know this voice all too well. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. We need a leader that wrote the art of the deal. How do we understand the Trump phenomenon? I think we understand that through the prism of the deal. And he can do a better deal than the other guy. And that's the way in which you need to understand everything that Trump does. And Donald Trump, the property magnet and reality TV show host, became president of the United States. The liberal world fell into a state of disbelief. That someone with such a mocking tone, politics of intolerance and disregard for facts could be elected to such an important post. But as time has passed, we're getting more and more used to his style of leadership, no matter how controversial his latest tweet might be. So, to what extent is he a leader of our time? What can we actually learn from his leadership? Someone who spent his career teaching, analysing and researching different kinds of leadership is Monash Professor and Deputy Dean Richard Hall. Professor Hall, welcome to Thought Capital. Thanks, Michael. Um, What is a leader? Well, a leader is someone who is constructed to be the leader. Uh, So there's nothing essential about leaders or leadership. They just happen to be attributed to that role and expected to perform as a leader or in a leadership role in an organisation or in some instances for a polity like the United States. So they're, they're constructed as much as they really are essentially anything at all. Part of my, my kind of thinking about leadership is the construction of leadership rather than it being essentially anything in particular. Well, has Trump got a particular leadership style, an identifiable style? Oh, no doubt. I think that Trump is fascinating when it comes to the question of leadership style. I don't know how deliberate it is, but certainly if we think about it, there's elements of populism, a heavy dose of charisma, a capacity to identify in an emotional way, certainly with his supporters. To generate strong emotional reactions is is really quite distinctive. He's grandiose. He's capricious, I think, in the exercise of his power. But there is something that is often labelled, I guess, a degree of authenticity about Trump, which is kind of interesting in the sense that whatever you might say about Trump, you wouldn't deny that he's being kind of honest, almost recklessly honest with his views. You know, so there's no attempt to try and gild the lily or or, or develop or hide anything. He's really quite open, I think, in many of his views. So there's no accusations of political correctness about Trump. That's for sure. But there's a conundrum in there. He is being honest about his views, which may well be lies. That's right. Well, there's certainly fabrications. I mean, most recently, certainly these sites that attempt to document that counted over 2,000 in a 12-month period of fabrications or or, or mistruths that, that he was certainly telling. But the fact that at the moment he might believe those things to be true is definitely a possibility. So he's certainly um, unguarded, I think, and very open in that way about his attitudes and what his beliefs appear to be. And obviously that has struck a chord with enough Americans to become president of the United States. So that style of leadership can be successful. 
Oh, there's no question it can be successful. And I think it's about the cut through that he's managed to achieve in the current political, social, cultural and economic climate of the United States. So I think in some ways Trump is the leader of of his times in the sense that the conditions in the United States have made someone like Trump absolutely possible. And that has um, economic dimensions to it, which are absolutely critical here. It is a story about increasing inequality in the United States and the resentment of a large part of the population for contemporary political elites and the political process. You've got to realise that the level of distrust that Americans feel for DC the beltway, the political system, Congress. I mean, Congress's approval rating in the United States is at the moment between 15 and 20%. That is incredibly low. So that level of distrust for established political elites and institutions is absolutely what Trump traded off. He was absolutely able to distinguish himself and contrast himself with Hillary Clinton on that basis so successfully. Those economic conditions of increasing inequality, the dimensions of it, Michael, let's not forget, if you go back to 1980, the top 10% of the US got 35% of the US national income. Now, in 2015 at least, the top 10% of the US is earning top 50% of the income. 90% majority has slipped from 65% of national income to less than 50%. That is the dimension of increasing inequality in the states. And that resentment has, has fed uh, a desire for change and someone different. Well, they've certainly got someone different. Um, that his policies would probably exacerbate that inequality is rather strange. Well, that's right. But this is not a, a phenomenon which can be explained in a rational policy basis. People did not vote for Trump because of his policies, but because of what he wasn't. I remember one of the really telling quotes I heard from a voter when asked prior to the election, and they said, I'll vote for Trump. I don't like Trump, but I despise Clinton. We could stray off here into aspects of the media and the way that that particular view was fed, the way Trump played the media. In terms of his style of leadership with modern communication, with social media, has he got precedence from earlier times, before Twitter? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, what Trump does strike at is a certain unmediated directness, you know, which he has. And his capacity to be a politician of his time and a creature of Twitter. Don't forget, though, the rather old-fashioned political rallies where he would speak directly to members and the number of rallies that he did participate in and continues to participate in is quite, is quite phenomenal. But in the sense of him being able to convert that populism in under cultural conditions of the contemporary nature of media, what we're talking about a seven second capacity, you know, here, that's the bite size that we're working with these days. And if you think about it, in seven seconds, you can say, I will make America great again. And then the applause, that's seven seconds. So it's a beautifully simplistic message, which is perfectly crafted for the contemporary media cycle. And, and don't forget, as Simon Sinek says, people don't listen to television anymore, they watch it. And so that image of an apparently larger-than-life flamboyant character there who can capture your attention, whether you like it or you don't, and, and say something in seven seconds, and that's all you want to hear. It has no substance to it. It has no meaning to it, but it is able to capture the imagination quickly and mark a point of departure from the established elites. Which is made for populism. At the heart of it is populism. I think that that is, I mean, there's a debate as to the extent to which you can argue that Trump represents a populist 
political style, but I think he does more so yes than, than no. Populism, don't forget, is all about trying to construct yourself as representing the undiluted will of the people and that you therefore simply, you know, it's impossible of course to have the undiluted will of the people, but you can construct yourself as being able to embody that and capsulate that and enunciate that and articulate it in ways which are appealing. And those ways need to be very, very simple. So what Trump does, of course, is always trade in these binaries, good or bad, um, you know, virtuous or evil, you know, right or wrong, black or white. Uh, we know the realities of politics and political life, economic circumstances are, are complex and complicated. There's shades of grey, but he doesn't trade in shades of grey. He keeps it very, very simple so that it can be easily articulated and you've always got someone to blame. So the other bit about populism is the necessity to be able to be negative uh, because that's entirely flexible. So you're not so much standing for something as standing against something and it's immigrants that you can blame for taking your jobs and you can make that a very, very simple argument that people think, great, we've got someone to blame, we've got someone who recognises that, who articulates that, I can identify with that. That's the heart of populist appeal. Paul Krugman has tweeted, the appropriate medium, that Trump has gone a step beyond, that he now invents problems the United States doesn't have. Yeah, and I think this notion of inventing problems that you don't have is uh, a very interesting strategy. One of the ways that we can think about Trump is as a transformational leader. And transformational leadership has been one of the most dominant theories in leadership studies for the last 20 or 30 years. Transformational leadership is all about being able to inspire and appeal to people to emotionally move them. Contrast it off with transactional leadership. You do something in exchange for something else. So the transformational leadership heavily imbued with ideas around charisma and charismatic it was observed when that theory was created that transformational leadership could be used for evil as well as good. In response to that, Bass and Stedelmeyer wrote a paper where they attempted to contrast genuine transformational leadership with pseudo-transformational leadership. And one of, the, one of the dimensions of transformational leadership that, that distinguishes pseudo-transformational leadership is this notion of actually inventing and creating crises or problems which don't exist in order to justify the actions of of the leader. And I think we see this quite brilliantly demonstrated by Trump, and a most classic example being immigration and Mexican immigration as a justification for building the wall, when of course that's creating a problem where there's historically low levels of illegal immigration from Mexico, yet creating that in order to justify his policies. Pseudo-transformational leadership doesn't fit as well in a tweet as populism does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, is populism inherently a bad leadership style or can you jump on the bandwagon for a good ends? I think the issue with populism and what makes it potentially so corrosive is the fact that populism really at its heart is about purporting to represent the undiluted will of the people. So the problem with populism is that whereas the reality of political life, political reality and economic conditions is one of complexity and subtlety and compromise, those things are hard to explain and hard to justify. Populism wipes all that away with a simplistic response that people can easily identify with. And is that really what makes it so dangerous in the extreme, that blaming other people for a problem that is complex? It does, at its heart, then promote a degree of divisiveness and, and, and division and separation. You know, that, so you'll often find that there is us and them, 
you know. So the whole idea about making America great again, and, and that seems to involve, uh, you know, protectionist policies and opposition to immigration. It simplifies and identifies that there is a group of us, and, and that is very often appealing to those demographics about white males in the US in particular who've been disenfranchised through the nature of globalisation, political transformation and change and increasing inequality. They're the victims. To encourage that victim mentality to hunker down, to become increasingly defensive. And I think that those are corrosive political values and political forces, no question. And that initial fabrication right in his election slogan, make America great again, on any sort of objective measure, America is great. Its distribution internally of that greatness is open to question, but on any measure, America remains and is the world superpower. Yeah, sure. And so I, I think there's a, there's a good case for that. Let's not underestimate, you know, some of the great achievements of um, American society, that those were invoked by recent presidents in different kinds of ways. You know, Obama, you know, perhaps most spectacularly and most recently. This is part of what also Trump is feeding off is that the, the assumptions that we make about political leaders and the way in which we construct political leadership sets us up for failure. It sets leaders up for failure continually. I think we could all feel that about the enormous investment in Obama you know, and that that was never going to play out. He was never going to be able to achieve that promise because of the complexities of contemporary political reality and political life. And it's happening again, I think, with Trump. Trump's not alone populist leadership, Le Pen in France, Farage in the UK, the Hungarians, um, there's a wave of it. Does that make sense? Let's remember, though, Michael, that populism isn't new. You know, it's been with us for, for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, of course, in different guises and different forms. But there's nothing terribly new about it. And some parallels, I mean, who is Trump like, you know, or is Trump really kind of unique in this regard? I think he is quite special. But I do find some parallels, for example, in someone like Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, and Duterte's capacity to speak directly and kind of brutally to the disenfranchised and to find someone to blame, in this case, you know, the extrajudicial killings of alleged drug dealers being the, the case in point there, that it provides a simplistic explanation for a situation and empowers people to feeling as though they can do something as dreadful as that is about it. So I think there's some interesting parallels there in a certain really unvarnished, quite brutal sort of honesty about that, that, that I see elements of that, sadly, in Trump. Does it end up inevitably in disappointment? Does the base turn against him? So far, it seems the base is sticking. I mean, the curious thing for Trump is that the policy success and the record and any sort of rational reading of the data is not likely to impact on him terribly greatly because that's not why people voted for Trump oddly. Again, they voted for for who he wasn't. The rhetoric is the reality here and he will be able through a process of fabrication and construction, which he's very good at, to be able to create failures and successes, uh, to be able to point to things, to fabricate things, to indulge in fake news that still presents and constructs himself as being successful, rhetorically successful. And don't forget he's a deal maker. I mean, this is ultimately, we talk about how do we understand the Trump phenomenon? I think we understand that through the prism of the deal. Well, he sold himself as a deal maker. Absolutely. It's all about the art of the deal. And the interesting thing about a deal is that there are winners and losers. The more I get, the less you get, right? So it's a two-way process. And this, this feeds into his very deep insecurity in the way in which he must constantly demonstrate that he's got more money, 
higher IQ, a bigger house, bigger hands even. I mean, he talks about the size of his hands, for heaven's sakes. This is what this speaks to. And he can do a better deal than the other guy. And that's the way in which you need to understand everything that Trump does. And the longest tie. Has his leadership changed at all over the past 18 months? I really see more of the same. He is going to focus on what he wants to focus on and ignore lots of other things, focusing on the things that he can make sense of, which is deals. So he focuses on things like trade deals because they're deals. Can he do a deal with Kim Jong-un, you know, for example? It's those things that he can focus on and make sense of. So I don't really see much of a change. Does that then help explain how his cabinet, his advisers, uh, increasingly surrounded by yes men and women, not to be challenged by anybody, that's a symptom of that? Yeah, and I think that the capriciousness with which, you know, you're fired, let's face it, the, that's what this is all about. That has nothing to do with their competence or actually their performance. It's a sort of a leadership style by which we keep people kind of fearful and second guessing and we demonstrate our power through that, you know, capricious use of the power. And is it symptomatic of being a powerful political leader rather than necessarily a populist that you don't brook any opposition? close to home. You do want yes men around you. Right. And that's symptomatic of a narcissistic personality trait as well. So that almost obsession with self, that need to constantly have admiration and adulation. Leaders of the future are going to have to be different. There are some ways in which the cultural conditions do do change in the sense that um, the way in which media messages need to be short and tight makes it very, very challenging for communicating complexity. So a capacity to be able to not dumb things down or to overly simplify things and yet still get that kind of cut through uh, with clear political messaging is is a real challenge for leaders in that way. But I, I believe it is still possible and there is still room for it. I mean, the contrast, I suppose, very much at the moment might be with Justin Trudeau, <laughs> for example, who... We talk about other political leaders that, that maybe measure up a bit better to those, those standards of good leadership. And I think one thing about Trudeau is he's tried to build a progressive politics that is more inclusive and is more tolerant, um, is more uh, forward-looking in many ways, um, is certainly aspirational, um, but doesn't shy away from the complexity of things, I guess. Not too many signs of anyone having much faith in Australian political leadership at present. To what extent are the votes for fringe parties, One Nation for example, not a matter of voting for One Nation, but just not wanting to vote for the Coalition or Labor? I think the problem rests not so much with the crisis of leadership as the way in which we're constructing our expectations around what leadership is. Fundamentally, I reckon leadership is about learning. What do we want? We want leaders, I think, who are able to cultivate learning and be open as learners themselves, to be honest with their people about what they can and can't do, um, and to help stimulate within organisations amongst their people a desire to learn. Okay, so success or failure, what do we learn from that? How do we do better next time? How do we do better not just for the organisation but for us as individuals and the communities that we serve? Well, there's no indication on Donald Trump's Twitter feed that there's anything he can't do. <laughs> we will see how his particular leadership pans out in time, we hope. Professor Richard Hall, thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find out more at monash.edu forward slash impact.
Thought Capital is produced by Tina Zanu. Editing and post-production by Nadia Hume. Technical support by Cameron Nickel. Executive producer is Helen Westerman. Thank you.